The title is Apologetics colon, it doesn't mean like a literal colon, it means the two dots, race and women. And I'll tell you why I picked this. So shh. This is an important topic and it's rarely ever talked about. Now you guys know by now that apologetics is defending the Christian faith. So how can you defend the Christian faith against race and women? Right? No. We'll get into this. See, this is what we're talking about. Tell me why you think issues regarding women are important. Anybody? Anybody? Really? Jeffren's the only one that knows why women are important? All right. Jeffren. Yes. Wait, did you just say women are less? I'm not talking to you. you just said... Jared. Oh. They, all right, so apparently you only think they're good for giving birth. All right. Okay, so he's the only, he's the spiritual one in the crowd because he said they're created by God too. So I guess they're valuable, right? They're not just for uh, carrying babies for nine months and giving birth, but, although that's a big part. But how many of you in this room, Kenny, don't raise your hand. You're going to be very tempted to. How many of you in this room are women? Some of you seem unsure. It's not a trick question, trust me. So obviously, this topic is important for at least half of the room who all happens to be mostly in the back. Sorry, ladies, but. <laughs> so it's important for that. Now, how many of you are guys? Now, <laughs> now you guys are here in a room full of women. Thus, Questions regarding women, issues of women, are very important, right? And I'm not just talking about like voting rights and making sandwiches and stuff like that. It's, it's going to be an important topic. Now, why do you think race is important? Anybody? What is this? Yeah. Yeah, God created everybody, right? So this is, no, I'm not calling on you anymore. Yeah, what were you going to say? Shh, 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 everybody quiet. Yeah, so technically, he's right, which we're going to get into. God didn't just say, hey, I'm going to create a white person, a black person, an orange person. He just said, I'm going to create a person. And through skin pigmentation and stuff, that's how people get darker and lighter. And it's shown through DNA that we're really not different, as even Martin Luther King Jr. did. But in the news... We see a lot of these issues, right? How many of you have heard and talked about in your schools or with your friends the Trayvon Martin case? A handful. How many of you don't know about the Trayvon Martin case? All right, a couple. So the majority of you know about it. It's this really big deal of a young black man was shot by a guy named George Zimmerman. I'm not going to get into details and stuff, but it's, it's a, it was an important issue for months and months and months, and the trial just ended, right? There's other things in the news of, I'm sure you guys have heard, who's our president? And people always say, oh, that's a big deal because we have a black president, right? These things are in the news. And it's be, shh, guys, I really need you to be quiet. Use your big boy and big girl minds to shut your traps. But these issues are in the culture, and as such, we should be people, as Christians, who engage the culture. And this is an apologetics topic because if we're to defend the faith, there's nobody that's going to believe in the Bible if they believe the Bible is against women. Nobody's going to believe the Bible if they believe that the Bible is for a white person. Nobody is going to believe the Bible if they say it condones slavery. And these are big issues that are talked about all the time, trust me. Throughout my college years so far, I've taken so many classes where I ask somebody if they believe in the Bible or we're talking about the Bible, they say no. Because it's culturally regressive and it's oppressive. Meaning this, we're so advanced these days. We have equality. We have technology. We have all these things. The Bible doesn't show that. The Bible has slavery. And the Bible has women being demeaned and talked little of and all the men are making fun of the women and putting them down and just using them for, for marriage and for babies. That's all they were using them for. 
And so they say that about the Bible. And it's a barrier for them. Because they're not going to come to believe the Bible unless they believe that it's actually promoting liberty, promoting freedom, promoting equality. And we're going to see tonight through studying race and women in the Bible, we're going to be very encouraged to see that this book that we read daily and this book that we esteem highly is not a book that brings us backwards to a primitive age. It's a book that has been used to abolish slavery. It's a book that has been used to help women get advanced in society. And it's a book that promotes equality because, as was said already, God created man and woman. He created them equal. He created people equal. And so we have value from that. And just as a way of illustration to show you just how important this issue is and how much it's on somebody's mind, just recently, while I was studying for this message, this might be a little bit too much information, but that's okay. You guys can handle it. I went to the bathroom. It's true. I went to a public bathroom. And if you guys know things about disgusting public bathrooms, what's usually in it? Actually, no, I'm not going to ask that because somebody's going to be like, I know! Poop! Writing. People usually like write stuff and scribble. Well, on this one section of the bathroom, they decided that everybody who comes in is only going to write on this one section. Now, wouldn't you know it, as I'm there, there's some really bad poetry about pooping. It was really, it was really weird. It, it was weird. Really bad poetry and stuff going on. But then it also said, like, oh, I believe in God. And then somebody else you could tell wrote, why would you believe in God? God is a white person. He promotes racism. And then another person under that said, well, actually, God is a sexist. How ironic, right? I'm studying for this, and then in a bathroom... Right there, written down, right there for all to see are these things. It's on people's minds. And that's why we have to study this topic because it's seldom talked about, but it's very important. Now these arguments that people give usually stem from one or two reasons. Number one is they misinterpret the Bible. That's usually where bad doctrine and bad ideas come from is when a person misinterprets the Bible. And number two, it's when people look at Christians instead of looking at the Bible. Now, I mean this. The Bible tells us to be a doer of the Word and not hearers only, right? The book of James talks about that. But you and I both know that historically and even in our lives, we don't match up to that. And sometimes we're the only Bible that people are reading. Meaning, we're what's aligning with the Scriptures, but when we misalign with it and when we're sinning and we're not acting according to this book, mistakes are made and people end up thinking that's what Christianity is. And so we're going to look at that. And so the first argument we're going to look at has to deal with race. And this argument says that Christianity is a white man's religion. It's a serious thing. Some of you may have not have heard it yet, but you will as time goes on, especially in college, because most college courses nowadays are making you take different type of multicultural classes, race classes. So these are going to be big issues that you'll deal with. Perhaps in some of your high schools, you learn African American history and things like that. So one argument that's proposed against the Bible is saying that Christianity and the Bible is a white man's religion. Alan would be really happy if he's here today because in the news recently, one of his favorite people in the world, right beneath Jesus, right? it's Jesus and then it's William Lane Craig. Have you guys ever heard him say William Lane Craig? I'm sure you have multiple times throughout a night. Recently in the news, William Lane Craig responded to another theologian from some top-notch school who came out in the news and began saying about the Trayvon Martin case that she believes that the American God is, what, is a white racist, a white supremacist. And she believes that. And she came out in the news and started saying that. And then William Lane Craig came on and started saying, well, you're not really doing justice to the real God of the Bible. You're just taking a cultural God. And so Alan would be really happy. Because again, this is in the news and this is important. But that woman was partly right. Because historically in America and in the American church, Christianity has been largely white and Christianity has been largely 
ruled by white people who ended up twisting the Bible to condone slavery, to condone segregation, to keep black people under, and other races too. When we talk about racism, it's not just against African Americans. It's against a whole variety of people. And so, we need to know how to answer that type of question when somebody comes up and says a Christian, Christian religion and the Bible is just for white people. If you guys have ever studied any type of African American literature, you'll see a very sad and startling theme. You'll see that there were many black people that wrote like James Baldwin or Nathan McCall or Richard Wright, if you've ever heard of those names. You'll see them say things like, I was a Christian once. Even James Baldwin was. He was a young preacher around my age and younger who preached in a church as the preaching pastor for years. And then he leaves Christianity because of the way that white Christians were treating him. And he said, if that's what that religion's about, I don't want anything to do with it. And then down the road, they end up going and forming kind of their own religion stemmed off of Islam called the Nation of Islam or the American Islam Brotherhood and things like that formed by people that were fed up with the white Christian religion. And so they go to that and they run to that and that should make us very sad that there were Christians living in that time who weren't aligning themselves with the Word of God and because of that, people left the church. Because of that mistreatment, because they didn't take the God of the Bible seriously, because they didn't truly believe what we're going to talk about tonight, people left the church. And that's startling because people today are still doing the same thing. And so how would we answer that? Well, one good way is to say that the Bible was never written as a book for white people. It should actually be kind of comical if somebody says that because where does the Bible mainly take place? Israel, more generally speaking? What? Middle East, right? There's, there's, a, there's an abundance of Jewish people in there. There's abundance of uh, what we would know today as Islam, Islamic people, Muslim people in there. We even read of some people from Ethiopia in the book of Acts. We read all these different people. We don't read of European white guys or white girls, and we don't read of American girls and guys who are fully white. So it's really crazy to think that people's argument against the Bible could be put down that simply as, well, have you ever read it? God was dealing with Jewish people. And in general, God was dealing with people. See, this is ultimately a perception problem. People often take how the Bible was used by its advocates instead of actually looking at the Bible itself. And a practical application for us is we better be sure that we're following this book. So when it says, love your neighbor as yourself, we better be sure that we're people that are on our hands and knees asking and pleading for God, how can we truly love one another? Not just how can we truly love different races, but how can we love one another in this room? Because when an unbeliever walks in here, they're going to scan the room and they're going to see where are the clicks. What jokes am I hearing? Am I, are people making fun of each other? And then they're going to come out thinking, that's no different than my school. That's no different from what I act. And that's what they're going to think Christianity is all about. It gets this stereotype. And we can't blame them for it because we're the reason why they have it. Number two, to answer this, you can tell them you can all also find people who use the Bible for good things. Right? It's not just that the Bible has been misused, which is true, but it's also been used for good things. It's abolished slavery with William Wilberforce. It's set up different voting rights for women. There's a lot of good things that people use the Bible for. Number three is the Bible has been used wrongly for many things, but it's not its original intent. When we're dealing with the Bible, we always got to ask ourselves, what, what is this portion really being written about? We take its context as a passage and as a book and as the Bible as a whole. We say, what is God really trying to tell us? Is God really writing an entire thesis paper on race relations or why the white race is better than all others? No. That would be Hitler's book called Mein Kampf. The Bible was a book written about Jesus. And if you've ever read the Gospels, which I'm sure you have, you've learned of the verses that say Jesus died for everybody. Jesus died on the cross, not for white people, not for black people. He died on the cross for you and for me. 
Doesn't matter what skin color you are. Doesn't matter what gender you are. If you are a person, Jesus has died for you. But again, the Bible has been used wrongly for many things, but it was not its original intent. Just recently, one of your leaders and a couple of your students that I don't believe are here, but his parents are. Hello, Grunthals. They made a video. It was a, it was a pretty comical video, and they, they won. They spammed everybody on Facebook. I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. They spammed people of this video. And, yep, we've got a brother there. Of It's not what it's made for, or something like that, where they take big cameras and lenses and stuff, and they use it for all really weird stuff, like eating cereal with a lens and, like, like using it as a stepladder, one of the cameras. Take it, my, the scariest thing that, was, that looked like it was real was when they took a laptop and they started playing Frisbee with it. And I saw it go, I was like, oh, I really hope they didn't do that in real life. But they're using things that are made for a distinct purpose, but they use it wrongly. Don't we do that with the Bible a lot? Even individually, we'll use it for our own purposes. Of saying, oh, what's going to be a good verse for me to feel good today right here? And then when it happens to say, I will smite thee with my hand and kill all your enemies under your foot. And we're like, oh, well, we'll just do it again. We'll pick a new one. We're people that often use the Bible wrong too. But on a more extreme level, Christians historically, especially in the American church, and in the world too with the Crusades, have used the Bible for their own purposes instead of understanding that it's a book about Jesus and how we could have a relationship with Him. And so when a person says Christianity is a white man's religion, though you might not hear that as often today as you would back then in the 1960s and 70s, it's still around, as we're going to talk about later, there's still so-called Christian groups around that believe that the Bible is just for white people. And it's scary. Argument number two, which I'm sure you guys have heard, is that Christianity endorses slavery. How many of you have heard that before? That the Bible endorses slavery. If you haven't, I'm sure you will at some point. It's a really big argument that atheists and skeptics alike often say. And so we're going to take some time really pulling out some passages and talking about, does the Bible really condone slavery? What kind of slavery is it? Because throughout the era of slavery, what we would know as the antebellum period, you know, pre-Civil War and after the Civil War, which you guys learn about in American history around the 1800s, 1850 around there, Christians actually used the Bible to say that slavery was divine, that slavery was God-ordained. Eventually, when 1850 came, it was the Compromise of 1850, which I'm sure you guys have learned about, very exciting stuff, if you like history. But we were expanding westward, and so we were trying to find out what to do with states like California and all those other states that I don't even know. What do we do with them? How do we split them up? Which ones get to be free states? Which ones get to be slave states? And the South actually used ministers and pastors to scan the Bible and say, what does the Bible have to say? And they pulled out passages saying, you can have slaves. Abraham had slaves. Paul said to return runaway slaves. And not oddly enough, one of the concessions that was made during the debates of 1850 was that the Fugitive Slave Act came into play. And that said that if a slave runs away, the North was required by law to send them back. And that became a very, very bloody thing. And it often became something that most of your African American literature of that time period writes about of escaping slavery and the dangers. If you've ever read Uncle Tom's Cabin, that's what it's about. And so how do we answer things like that? Well, one way is to say that the slavery in the Bible is often confused with Civil War slavery. If you haven't noticed, the Bible was written a long time ago. And America is a very, very young nation, right? America's only been around a few hundred years. Bible, thousands of years. And so people, when they say that the Bible condones slavery, what they're really saying, and what they're really usually comparing it to, is the Bible condones American slavery. That's the arguments they use during that period. And this is bad, because it's a misunderstanding of slavery in general. You see, American slavery of what we know of, of how people took blacks 
from Africa, shipped them and sold them in America, and they worked on plantations. And they worked under harsh conditions and they were whipped and beaten and killed and nobody cared. That's a misunderstanding because that's new. That was unique to America. And that was unique to that time period. There's a difference between old world slavery and new world slavery. And we're considered the new world. Old world slavery, just to compare and contrast, was temporary. It wasn't lifelong. The slavery that we know about, that we learn about in school, was lifelong. Once a slave, always a slave. Unless you happened to gain some money and your, and your owner wanted you to be gone and you paid them. But then you end up being a slave to somebody else once they caught you. That's usually how it worked. Old world slavery, the jobs would normally be farming and you would actually get to eat of what you make and other various jobs in houses and in mining. And it usually wasn't that dangerous. It was just like extra hands-on type of work. New world slavery, people worked on plantations, which was very hard work. Picking cotton was incredibly hard. And then when Eli Jin created the cotton gin, or Eli Whitney created the cotton gin, and everybody said, oh, this is going to be great because we won't need as many slaves to pick the cotton because it allowed people to grab the cotton much faster with this machine, it ended up actually creating more work because they got more of those cotton gins and used more slaves to do it and produce more and more and more and more cotton. So it backfired on them and it was very dangerous work. Old world slavery was never inherited and families were actually protected legally. Which meant if you had a child in slavery and you married somebody in slavery, once you're gone, after a handful number of years to pay back a debt or something, you could take your family. New world slavery... People split apart families. People sent young children away from their mothers on the auction blocks forcibly and took them and split them apart. Once again, if you read Uncle Tom's Cabin, you'll see all of this. And it's very scary that it's happened and it's only been a couple hundred years since then. Old world slavery was also intertribal, which meant other tribes went and stole other tribe slaves. It wasn't based on race. New world slavery, obviously, based on race. If you're black, you're a slave. It got so bad to the point where even if you were like one-eighth or even one-twenty-fourth or something like that, black, and you had some type of black ancestry, like your great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was black, you would be considered black and you'd be a slave. Even if you looked as white as I do. If somebody knew... Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Haha. Even if you had part black in you, you would be a slave. And so we really, when people bring up that, we have to say, what kind of slavery are you talking about here? Because biblical slavery is even more different than the old world slavery, where there's more laws and more protections, which we're going to get into. You see, biblical slavery is more like what we would consider indentured servitude. Does anybody know what that is? Jared? Yeah, you pay off a debt to somebody. You're kind of like an employee. Whereas if you're in debt you would end up being their apprentice. You would do one of the jobs. You would actually learn the job too. And some people who were indentured servants went on from there to make their own companies. Um, Thomas Jefferson was an indentured servant. No, Benjamin Franklin was an indentured servitude at one point. He worked for a publishing company and he worked for his brother. And he was indentured by law for X amount of years and he had to work off those years until he could be free. He ends up running away and escaping it, but it's more like indentured servitude. It wasn't the slavery that we think of. It was paying back debts as an employee. A good example of this is in sports. In sports, any type of sport, when they make a trade for another player, the player comes, I believe the Giants just traded for a linebacker, that's, that's good news for those of you that watch football, it's good news. But technically they have an owner, right? Their owner is the... the entire owner of the team. But that's not saying that that owner literally controls that person's life. Saying, you're going to live in my house under my rules. Like, no, I'm 30 years old. I could kind of take care of myself. I'm also a millionaire. It's the same thing. When in the Bible it was talking about owners and masters, it wasn't literally saying you own their entire life. It was saying you own their labor. You own their work when they're working a 9-to-5 job or whatever it was that they had them do. In biblical slavery, lifelong servitude was actually forbidden. 
You see, there is this awesome system in Israel. What we know of as Israel. And as the Jewish people. In their laws, the laws and the books that we usually don't read like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Those laws set up to where if a person was poor, you could become an indentured servant to pay back the debt. And so you would go and you would do that and you would work, but when seven years passes, you're automatically freed. Also, if you ended up selling land and property, 50 years passes, year of Jubilee, it goes back to the family. That's very different from what we think of as slavery. These laws set to protect the poor. These laws set up to actually have people work off their debt, not under harsh conditions, but to work off their debt in such a way that they could still live their lives and be considered human. This was all to help the poor and even end poverty. God set up this really intricate system knowing that poverty was a real thing. Not His ideal, but poverty was real. He set up this system so that those who are poor can voluntarily become a servant. It was voluntary. People didn't go and steal and say, you're my servant now. Get over here. They would go up to Him and say, I know you're doing well. I'm in debt. Can you help me? I will be your servant. And they would work. And they would pay off their debt. And they would learn the trade. And they would help them farm and stuff. You see, Old Testament laws actually tried to prevent debt. And a good example of that is if you've ever read the book of Ruth, you'll see an astounding picture of Ruth comes and she's gleaning in a field. She was poor. She was just living with her mother-in-law. She was gleaning from a field, gathering the the barley during the harvest. That was set up even for foreigners because she didn't live there. It was set up even for foreigners. But poor people were allowed and they were actually, Israel as a whole was commanded, let people do this for the poor. Have your leftovers. Allow the poor to glean in your fields so that people aren't starving in the land. This very intricate system of laws that actually tried to prevent this. See, the Israelites were to give to the poor and without even charging interest. That's something that we should even learn today. I I remember when I was back in school, like elementary school and stuff, and you would have the nicest pen or pencil and somebody would want to borrow it and then you would say, alright, I'll let you borrow it, but then you've got to give me like two sticks of gum for like every minute that you have it. Right? Charging you interest. Even that's, like, that's really young people interest. I had my nephew do that once actually where I borrowed something of his. I forget what it was. But he said, alright, but you're going to have to pay me like a penny for every second. I'm like, boy, who are you talking to? But yet, Israel and the Jewish people in their laws were to set up a way in which they were actually being generous to the poor so that people would not have to be a servant, so that people wouldn't have to go into this slavery. And of course, the debt was canceled after seven years. Also, servants were treated as human beings, not property. Some ways this was set up. Injured servants were to be freed. That's found in Exodus. If an employer kills his servant accidentally the employer is to be put to death. So if an employer even said, you know what, I'm going to discipline this guy because he ain't doing what I want. And he starts whipping him and he beats him to death and he dies, that person was judged responsible. We don't see that in the American slavery that we think of because a black person was property and you could do with your property whatever you want to do. Very different. And we need to be aware of these things. Also, at one point, one of these servants that were considered a slave was given the owner's daughter to become his wife. We definitely wouldn't see that in American slavery, right? An owner or a master of a bunch of slaves on a plantation wouldn't say, you know what, I have this beautiful daughter, I'm going to give her to my slave. We wouldn't see that because they treated them as inhuman. But here in Israel, everything was set up to where you're only taking a step down the social ladder but you're still a person. You're just not as popular. You're just not as rich. You're just not as well-to-do. There was even anti-kidnapping laws, which can be found in Exodus chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 24, where these laws were set up to where you cannot just go and grab people and say, you are my slave. If you have younger siblings, I'm sure you do that to them. That's okay if you have younger siblings and do that, but 
That's really important because, of course, in American slavery, if a slave ran away, they were to be sent back. Another thing to note about this is even foreign slaves from neighboring lands were protected. They were told, Israel was told to offer safe harbor to runaway slaves. Not return them, not treat them harshly, not steal them for yourself. And also, Israelites were commanded to be nice to foreigners anyway, which we see in the book of Ruth and which we see with the whole story of Rahab. Now, that's a lot of information I know. But I want to give you this general overview of this so when you hear these questions, you at least have some type of answer in your mind. That you at least know that this Bible can be trusted and that it promotes equality. And that the Bible in no way condones slavery. Yeah, there's horrible things in the Bible, but we have to remember this. The Bible's written as a narrative. Which means it's reporting facts that actually happened. So when we read so-and-so raped so-and-so, or so-and-so killed that. It's not saying, you go and do likewise. Thumbs up. Or like the like button on each. They're going to have that someday where like after every verse in an electronic Bible, you could hit like for Facebook. It'll be, it'll be that. They're going to have it. But that's not what it was like. You, you wouldn't just do that and read the Bible and say, oh, it's saying that I could go get a slave if they're in debt. So let me go and find some homeless people and say, hey, you could be my slave for seven years and I'll let you go. It's not saying that. It's reporting facts of what happened. The fact of the matter is, we live in a fallen world, and because of that, there were these systems put in play, which was really graceful and merciful for God to even think of these different types of laws to protect the poor and to protect women. And that's what we move on to next, is the issue regarding women. You see, the argument is that the Bible is misogynistic. Does anybody know what that is? Misogyny. Yes? What? What? <laughs> Loud and proud. Yeah, it favors men. So uh, think of it as just being hateful towards women, favoring men, having these patriarchal structures. Women are mistreated. They say main characters in the Bible are almost always men. And even, I'm sure, Alan has talked about this guy too, in a negative way. A guy by the name of Richard Dawkins. Very famous atheist. He even claims that the Bible is misogynistic. He says that flat out. He calls God a a misogynist. He says God hates women and He favors men. Well, how would we answer things like that? Well, first off, we have to go back to what the ideal is. And the ideal is found in Genesis 1 and 2. The ideal is found where it says that God created male and female. God created created women just like he created men that shows value that shows equality i want to read this quote by a guy by the name of paul copan or copan however you want to say it doesn't matter if he's french or english i don't know but he says this about genesis 1 and 2 he says although genesis 1 and 2 spells out the ideal of male female equality Laws regarding women in Israel take a realistic approach to fallen human structures in the ancient Near East. In Israel's legislation, God does two things. Number one, He works within a patriarchal or male society to point Israel to a better path. And number two, He provides many protections and controls abuses directed at females in admittedly substandard conditions. Do we see examples of oppressed women in the Old Testament? Yes, And we see lots of oppressed men as well. In other words, we shouldn't consider these negative examples endorsements of oppression and abuse. In other words, he's saying, when we read about the mistreatment of women in the Bible, it does not mean that we're supposed to go out and do it. Again, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is largely written as a narrative, which means it's stating what happened. It's not saying to go and do it. And the fact of the matter is, again, when we point to the ideal, we see that creation was once perfect. And we strayed from that. And through sin, racism comes. And through sin, demeaning women come. Misogyny comes. We don't have to go too far to figure out why people have hated different races or why people have hated women. All we have to go back is to the book of Genesis 
and see, world was perfect, world not perfect anymore. Creation perfect, men and women perfect, living in harmony, Genesis 3, not anymore. It changed, and it's through the sinful heart of man that racism and misogyny comes. Another way to answer this that you really have to know is that women in the Old Testament are spoken of with dignity and value. When you read the Old Testament, there's certainly instances of mistreatment of women there, but there's a lot of places where they actually value people. And this is where we're going to get into more. In Proverbs chapter 31, which I'm sure a lot of people know, and if you have Bibles, turn there. If you guys had checked the Impact Facebook page a couple days ago, I posted some things to get you guys thinking before the study of what we're going to be talking about. It's okay if you didn't do it, but I told you guys to read Proverbs 31, specifically verses 10 to 31, and ask yourselves, what does this say about women? You see, normally with Proverbs 31, people make the mistake of going right to Verse 30, which says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Yeah, that's a very important verse, but all the other verses are important too because we're going to see, well, let's just read some of it. Proverbs 31, verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her, for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms she perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. And it just goes on from there, listing all these very good qualities and qualities that unfortunately we don't always match up with women. We don't always think of women as, oh, they work with their hands a lot. They build stuff. Oh, they run an international business. Unfortunately, we don't usually think that. We associate it with, oh, they drive, they drive uh, kids to soccer practice. They make dinner. They make food. They're delicate, so you don't want to flick them because they get bruises. But here in Proverbs 31, we see an astounding passage in the Old Testament which is claimed to be hateful towards women. We see that this woman runs a business she works with her hands. She strengthens herself. She gets up early and provides for her household. She's spoken of well in the community. She treats her maidservants well. She gives to the poor. Which means she's serving. She's being selfless. She's being strong in character. She's providing for her kids, her husband. That's valuable. One person who works with Ravi Zacharias, says this about this passage. That this woman, she is a woman who has the confidence of her husband. She works hard at running an international business. She gets up early and provides for her family and employees. She owns property and cares for the poor. She clothes her household well and dresses beautifully herself. She is in charge of the home and her children honor her. She fears God and is respected in her community. Does that sound like misogyny to you? Does that sound like the Bible is some type of book that's saying women are dumb? Women are worthless? Men are what's important? No. Another passage in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 16 where we see Hagar, who was a mistreated servant or, or, or slave of that time that Abraham kind of went and, and took because he wasn't having children with Sarah. And so Hagar is mistreated and they cast her out. And it says in Genesis 16-7 that God spoke to her. God spoke to a woman. Now, what's astounding about that is the literature of that time period and even until fairly recent, nobody would ever say that women 
could have access to God. Because they would believe you have to go through a man. All the other literature during the time period in which this was written, the Bible, no other book, no other literature has a woman female character being given a message from God through an angel or through a messenger or from God Himself. You see, in that time, no literature would have a deity or His message speaking to a woman because it's saying that she is valuable enough to be spoken to. Once again, the Bible is by no means hateful towards women. We also see in the Bible that there were prophetesses. Or prophetesses? Prophetes? I, I don't know. We see Miriam, Moses' sister. She was a prophetess. We see Deborah, who actually led an army. That's pretty cool. So if you girls want to lead an army, I'll be in your army. We see Isaiah's wife was considered a prophetess. And this girl named Holda. Now, this is a very ugly name. But I, I hope it's not your name. If that is, I take that back and I'm very sorry. It's beautiful. But Holda. And that's when you say, hold the what? <laughs> anyway. In that, we read about 2 Kings. And we see the story of Josiah, the king, who ends up finding the book of the Lord. Finding the Word of God. And he goes to his messengers and some of his leaders and says, we need to find out more about this book. And strikingly, those leaders went to Holda and said, what can you tell us about this? Now, this is really important because if you know the chronology of the Bible, Holda's contemporary of that time, which means a person that was also an important prophet in that time period, was Jeremiah. So these people, instead of going to Jeremiah, who would have been available, they went to Holda. Hold the what? Hold the, the Bible. <laughs> we also see, moving on, another way to answer this is that you must understand what genre of the Bible you're reading. Again, most of the Old Testament is narrative and not didactic, which means it's not for telling you to do something. It's showing what was happening. It's an account of what happened, not necessarily telling readers exactly how to respond. But there are some cases where a woman's suffering is actually written in a tender manner of saying if a woman was mistreated, it's written tenderly of stirring up sympathy and saying, oh, the poor woman didn't have a baby. Oh, poor woman. Or poor Hannah. Hannah in the Bible prayed diligently and we see her getting made fun of because she doesn't have a baby and so they have like a baby war. and Like, I'm going to have more babies than you. Like, no, I'm going to have more babies than you. Interesting old-time history, right? Of people having baby races. That's interesting. Another thing to consider is Jesus' treatment of women. And this is going to be the last things that we talk about, so hang in there. Jesus and the New Testament treat women extremely well. Better than we do today. Because the fact of the matter is today, women still don't earn as much as men do nationally, on average. And because we talked about race before, African Americans also don't earn as much as a white male. Which is unfortunate, but that's why we got to get into the Bible and read about these things. You see, in John chapter 4, which Pastor Lloyd brought up this last weekend, where oddly enough, he kind of spoke about women in, in the church. He spoke more about roles, not apologetically. But in John chapter 4, we see Jesus goes up to the Samaritan woman and speaks to her. And when His disciples come, his disciples say, why is he talking to a woman? This is nuts. He's alone talking to a woman. What is wrong with Jesus? What is wrong with him? Well, doesn't he know that there's more important people to talk to? I mean, we're here. Why is he speaking to a woman? They knew how countercultural it was for Jesus, a rabbi, to go up and be speaking individually to this woman. Oddly enough, this Samaritan woman is actually the first person in John's Gospel who discovers Jesus' true identity as the Son of God. Jesus even had female disciples. If you turn to the book of Luke, in chapter 8, it talks about these female disciples. Which is important because back then, nobody would have females as disciples. It was male-oriented. It was just for men. And in Luke chapter 8, 
as I turn there. Luke chapter 8, it mentions just that. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Female disciples. Frankie, you're very excited about that. Good job. <laughs> he flicked you? That's nice. Jesus teaches women, which was also very countercultural. Again, in the, in the book of Luke, we learn, which I'm sure you guys have heard this passage, of Mary and Martha. Where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha is busy doing the homemaking stuff and preparing and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha doesn't really like that. And she's like, why, why don't you tell her to get up and start being in the kitchen with me? Isn't that where we belong? But Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. And that same phrase in the Greek is used in the book of Acts when Paul describes learning under his teacher, Gamaliel, which was a very prominent rabbi and a very prominent theologian of that time period who taught many people it's the same phrase that was used. And so it logically follows that when Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, it's not just like she was sitting down saying, I love your feet, Jesus. I, that's a nice bunion. I like that bunion. I guess Jesus wouldn't have bunions because as soon as he gets a blister or something, he's like, be healed. That would be an awesome commercial for like bunion removers for grandmothers and stuff. Like, Jesus cream. Rub it on and you'll be healed like Jesus. Anyway. So Mary was learning theological concepts from Jesus, the Creator of the universe. If that's not showing how valuable Jesus and the Bible shows women, I don't know what is. Later on, Mary's sister Martha is the first one to be taught one of the greatest theological truths ever in John chapter 11, which you guys are going to be studying in the book of John soon where she learns that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus teaches her that. Jesus also uses female examples and images in His parables, which showed that He also wanted women to grasp what He was saying. He didn't want to just teach the men and say, alright men, I taught you now. now. Now go tell them. I don't want to deal with the women, those long-haired creatures. I don't want to deal with them. He uses examples like mending the garment in the book of Luke. He uses examples like lighting lamps in the home. And that was to show in these parables, he often teamed them up with female images of what was common that females did. Like today, he would probably say, playing with dolls and men tackling and hitting these things. He was doing that and teaming them up so that they would both learn more about what he was saying. He wanted women to know these things. He wanted women to grasp who he was and really have a relationship with him. And startling, Jesus even portrays God in a feminine form. Now, don't go back to Alan when he comes back and says, Alan, this Mike guy that you had come in and teach, he said that God was a woman. Now, I know that ain't true because it says God's a father and God ain't no confused person. He's not going to think he's a woman and a man at the same time. And I'm not saying that. God is pure spirit. He doesn't have a necessary gender but he does have characteristics. And Jesus is using these images to store up more about what God is. God is depicted through Jesus as a woman down on her hands and knees, searching through her house for a lost coin. Jesus also likens himself to a mother hen, saying in Luke chapter 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers the chicks under her wings. Jesus is a mother hen. That's a good bumper sticker. Jesus, the mother hen. It would be really weird if Jesus there compared himself to like a male hen, because aren't they like really vicious? And like they jump up and they're like, I'm gonna kill you. That would be horrible. So Jesus uses a woman picture, and I thank God for that because. I'd rather be gathered under the wings of Jesus instead of being clawed to death by His talons. 
That's another good bumper sticker. Go under the ring. Don't go under the wings, not the claw. And lastly, women were the first ones to see the resurrected Jesus. And in that time, in that time, that would be unheard of to even put in a book that in your whole entire faith is wrapped up, Paul says, in the resurrection of Christ. Why in the world would they say that women were the first ones to see Him? Because a woman's voice of that time was considered subpar, substandard. You can't trust a woman's voice. Again, even that came from misinterpretations of the Bible because they believed that since Eve was the one that was deceived, all women are deceptors. All women are these evil villains that want to deceive you. And we still have some images of that today. The image of what I believe you people these days call a gold digger. Right? That is the term. She's just going to deceive you and take your money. My mom told me that, and then I reminded her, I don't have no money. <laughs> Problem solved. Just be poor. You, you won't have to worry about it. But it was very important in that time period that they would even say that women were the first ones. That would, they would even admit it. You would think that they would lie and say, no, this really big manly man with, with chest hair out the wazoo and this big burly beard that you could just like bathe in it and like, like the chickens just lay their eggs in the beard and it's incubated there. They saw the resurrected Jesus. I'm sorry for that image. They're the ones that did it. They didn't lie. They said, no. Women saw the resurrected Jesus first. Like, well, all right. This is just going to show that the arguments that people have against the Bible aren't as sound as they think they are. Yes, I'm not going to lie to you. There's thousands of passages in the Bible that are difficult to interpret. There's thousands of passages in the Bible where you read that and you go, that doesn't sound very pretty. That doesn't sound like it's very good to women. Those are difficult to explain. I, of course, only chose a select few passages since we only have limited time. But there are answers. And it starts with understanding the Bible and its contextual time frame. Understanding what was going on in the culture and why God was writing. Understanding the genre of the Scripture. Understanding also that a lot of these arguments stem from the church because Christians were out demeaning women. Christians were out saying, women are nothing. They're only good for food. That's why we keep them around. In many cases though, when you look hard enough in the Bible... I often see that women seem to, to literally understand and quote-unquote get it more than men do. There's a passage in the beginning of Luke where John the Baptist is being born and an angel comes and tells Elizabeth, his mom, you're going to have a baby. Well, Alright, cool. I love babies. Then when he tells the dad, the dad's like, uh... Okay, sure. He ends up being mute because he doesn't believe. And it's his disbelief. He ends up being mute for a little while and then eventually wears off and he has the baby. But it was in that situation, and even with Mary, the mother of Jesus, where she was told, you're going to have a baby by the Holy Spirit. You don't see her going, huh, that was a funny joke. I'm going to have God's baby. Right. No, she's like, all right, bring the baby on. No, she didn't literally say that. That would be scary. I would be afraid for Jesus' childhood if, she had a, if, she, if he had a mom that, that sounded like that. That would be horrible. But again, the own husband, of, well, the guy that was about to be a husband for Mary was kind of going to put her out and you know, be nice to her because he, she, he thought that he, she was sleeping around. She, he didn't believe her at first until later. In these situations, it seems like women are really getting it more than men. 
Seems like in those situations that men really are the dumb ones. Sorry, guys, we're dumb. Jeffrey's like, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> I believe he said, yes, sir. Did you say, yes, sir? Oh, yes, it's okay that I'm dumb. I could live with that. Good job, Jeffrey. But this is important, and these topics are important, and I only give you a general overview. But it just shows that the Bible is by no means regressive, bringing us back in time to a primitive time frame. The Bible is by no means fighting against the quality, fighting against a woman's value or a race's value. The Bible, in fact, is more advanced than we give it credit for. We think we're so advanced today and we think that we live in a post-racist society. Well, we don't. But if we truly, and if everybody truly followed this book like we're told to, and did it, and treated people with the love of God, we wouldn't have the problems that we see today. But once again, the problems stem from sin. And we're not exempt from it. You might not consider yourself a racist. You might not consider yourself hateful towards women. But maybe you do small things throughout your day where your actions kind of show that you're still a sinner and you do similar things. That you're still not treating one another as you should. And you know where you could get good practice? Right here in this room. Because if we cannot love one another, we can sure not go outside these doors and love the people that hate us. Or love the people that curse at us. Or say we're stupid because we believe in this book. We need to start loving one another here. Even Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their love for one another. And when the outside world sees our love for one another, they're going to say, I want that. Unfortunately, a lot throughout the Christian church, unbelievers didn't see that. Unbelievers looked in at us and said, yeah, you got some racists there. You got some people that hate women. And those are still out there today. In closing, I just want to tell you of a couple groups to watch out for and a couple groups to actually know that call themselves Christians. One of them is the KKK, which is still around. Don't think that they're not. They're still around and technically through freedom of speech, they're protected with the things that they do as long as they don't go out and commit violent acts. There's also a group called the Christian Identity Movement, which has thousands upon thousands of members in America alone that preaches white supremacy and they set up churches that are only for whites They preach that the Bible is for whites. They preach that Jesus was fully white and He was for the white man and that God hates all the other races and that they're doomed to hell. Just recently in the news too, there was a church that aligns themselves with that. It wasn't necessarily a Christian identity church or the KKK, but they had a pastor's conference. Which is a good thing, right? Pastor's conference, good. But the conference said only for white people. We weren't allowing anybody else in. And it stirred up controversy within the community. And yet these are people that call themselves Christians. We're by no means away from these controversies. And we're not going to be. We can't outrun race and we can't outrun hatred for one another because sin is still in the world. And it's only through Jesus and the cross where people can overcome that hatred. It's only through Jesus and His blood where we can be wiped clean and actually start to love one another in this own room and those outside. And when we do that, we're going to have a new appreciation for the way that God created people. And we're going to have a new appreciation for this book and we're going to want to read it and understand it properly so that we don't make similar mistakes and that we don't make what we consider minor mistakes of just doing like lies, like small sins. The fact of the matter is, if you're mistreating somebody, that's just as good as hating them. Making fun of them. And I see it a lot in youth groups. And it's something that you guys can definitely change because when you guys start loving one another in this room, it's going to carry throughout the church. And it's going to carry from the church to the world. And you don't know how this small group of people in this room, just starting by loving one another right here, by ending any of the drama that's going on, 
If you can start truly loving one another as brothers and sisters, you truly can impact the world. No pun intended, because this is impact. But it's true, and that's why its name is Impact. And it starts in this room. So we're going to close, and I'm going to pray. I really hope that you guys, though that's a lot of information, are encouraged to know this. You can find answers to these questions. And the Bible is a book that can be trusted. The Bible is a book that promotes value in women and in all races. Because as was noted before, there's only one race. It's the human race, and God created it. And that gives it value. And He redeemed it. And that gives it value. And He's going to come back for it. And that gives it value. So let's pray. Father, we do thank You that You are a God that's merciful and graceful. That even though we screw up, that even though we're full of hatred and full of a sinning heart and hard hearts and we're so stubborn at times, that You are a God that's faithful even when we're unfaithful. That You pursue us with Your love and that You don't want to let us go out of Your hand. That You're searching for us like a lost coin in a house. We thank You for Your love and that through Your blood we can be wiped clean. And we thank You that You've given us the example and You've given us the power to love one another. So we pray that our hearts would be softened tonight and that we can truly start loving one another here by getting to know people that we don't know, by seeing unfamiliar faces and encouraging them, by asking people how they're doing and how we can pray for them and actually doing it. Give us the power and strength and encouragement to do these things. And it's in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Or, to be gender neutral, a woman. Some of you guys know.